All right, welcome to the Exodus of Magic podcast. This is Dungeon Master Eddie coming with episode six, which is entitled Drew. Um, we've talked about Drew and some of his things he's done at the table, uh, both both good and bad in previous sessions. And we're here with uh, Drew's son, Dragon. Hello, I'm Dragon. And we're going to talk about um, just the history of Drew. And, and the goal of this is, is to take away... Um, what we can learn about players like this, people who can be rule lawyery and and curmudgeon-y and stubborn at the table, and <laughs> how to and this is being as kind as possible. Um, I mean, the, the, I think the traditional word is asshole. Right? Yeah, I, you don't have to tell me. I miss him every day, but he was far from perfect. Yes. So the the goal is to have some takeaways to to understand these players and DMs and and work within uh, their their mindset so as to, to try to find a good balance at the table. So let's let's start at what would be the beginning. What is the first time you remember gaming with dad? Well, let's go with what I think really solidifies the type of person my dad was. And that's how he taught my sister and I how to make characters. I believe it was 3rd edition. I could be wrong. But I was about six or eight and my sister was two years older than me and he wanted to play D&D with us so he handed us two character sheets two pencils and the player's handbook and said make a character okay how it's in the book okay so we so that was the entire process every time we tried to ask something he'd go it's in the book look it up and the only time he would actually, uh, he and eventually we would think that we were done with our character sheets and be like, "Here, Daddy, here's our character sheet." And he'd look it over. He's like, "Nope, you got something wrong." He wouldn't say what was wrong. He just said, "You got something wrong," and handed the sheet back and said, and left it to us to figure out what it was. Again, neither of us were older than ten years old. He was a toss-you-in-the-deep-side-of-the-pool-to-teach-you-to-swim type of guy. And it was which is also, to, it's also how he taught me to swim. And it's up to you to get <laughs> out of the bag before you do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so did you, did you eventually get to play with those characters, or was that like a, a campaign-long experience actually building the character? We played like a session or two. I mean, we got the characters done before the end of the day, because we weren't doing anything else until we did. Uh, like, I was a paladin... So, so yeah, it started that early for me. Uh, I can't remember what my sister was, but it it didn't last that long. It's honestly the character learning how to make characters that way is more memorable than anything that we wound up doing. Now, think to the first time you got to play where he was also a player, where you were all on the same side of the table. What was that like? Uh. I can't remember specifically. It's kind of hard to remember when or when uh, when I was or wasn't a player because so many times, I mean, we'd be around and watching, and you know, to me, it was like, it almost felt like I was playing too because I was also at the table. But you know, All right, your first experience where you saw him as a player, right? Uh, well, <laughs> he he really liked making roguelike characters and all and using them to the full extent of uh, shenaniganry or he'd be made or he'd be playing a cleric character and whining about it 
Well, his his clerics, uh, like the phrase that I I first heard him say that stuck was OMC. OMC, old man cleric. Mm-hmm. And what I remember of his clerics was he he was he would play a traditional cleric of Paylor, where it, like undead did not stand a chance against him. Oh yeah, he would heal, but that was that was the extent. But he understood his role and he filled it. Yeah, he didn't like it. But he was good at it. He would also... Well, it depends. There were times he would like it when he got to use it to enforce um, party cohesion <laughs> by fiat. Where it's like, we're going to go do this. And if your character was a smartass, I'm going to do that. whatever this thing is that doesn't jive with what the party is trying to do or the goal of whatnot. And you got hurt, he wasn't going to heal you. You know, you're, you're outside of warranty, son. You don't, you don't get... You don't get uh, you don't get the, the, the blessing of the cleric at that point. You sleep it off. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, again, uh, like it's been a minute since I've looked over the per, uh, types of personalities attracted to the certain uh, to the different gods, but I feel like that's not really too jiving with Paylor's style. Like, he, like to me, uh, like to my knowledge, a cleric of Paylor might go, oh, you, and shake his finger at you, but he'd still heal you. Like, yeah, Paylor is a, a neutral good deity. What what your dad felt more lawful neutral. Like these are the dictums you fell outside of the dictums. Get bent. That's how you learn. Yeah, like the the proverbial angry paladin who's hanging on to that G in the alignment by like one little finger and really thinking about whether or not he should just hang on or become a fighter. <laughs> I mean, we could have a whole separate podcast talking about paladins and lawful good and whatnot, but. Yeah, like, there's a reason Dad never played a lawful good character, to my knowledge, anyway. No, I never, never saw it close. And, uh, I, like, I don't think he ever made eye contact with lawful good. Not not favorably, no. I think as he, the other phrase that he would use frequently was lawful stupid. I mean, there are the people who play to that stereotype, but, yeah. Well, he didn't, when I think of him and a, a versus lawful good, I think his his view of lawful stupid was the... Like, selfless goes too far at some point. Because your dad, sure as hell, was not selfless. Like True. His, especially in D&D. He, I mean, he did not... He was a character who uh, who made... He was the type of player who made sure treasure was split up evenly. At yeah. least evenly. Oh, yeah. You're, <laughs> you're, you're buying your way out of any magic item that's really, really cool. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're going to sell it and figure it out. Uh, I think... When I think of him, the other thing he was, and it just goes to his, here's the book, you learn it, was a strict adherent to the printed word in the book. Rule, uh, raw, rules as written. Yeah, he was he was hardcore to that. And the one thing that would always piss him off is when, like, if he dealt with something that was not printed in any of these books, he would, you know, borderline throw a fit. And it, it, the one thing that would always frustrate him that he would have selective memory on things. Like Frank, <laughs> as Frank would make the arguments about why psionics were balanced in 3.5, though we could very clearly demonstrate repeatedly why they weren't, Frank would, would kind of just, you know, whatever, and then forget it and we'd have the argument again later <laughs> because he just didn't want to remember it. Uh, it's just it, As a quick aside, it, it comes with the, the, the nature of the curve where... Your PowerPoints mean you can just do all ninth level stuff, whereas Wizards only get a little bit of ninth level and it scales down from there. Um, but when it came to him, any time, to him as in Drew, any time that there was 
anything that was outside the encyclopedic rules knowledge, he would try to corner case and be like, what, what book is that from? Where is this? Where is this? It's so like, he had a hard time adapting to things that were totally homebrew. Oh, absolutely. Like he, like, he was not... He was the antithesis of the Borg. This dude was not adapting to anything. The... The first campaign I ran that went from 1 to 20, when your dad was there from beginning to end, there were two key moments that, that highlighted this, this refusal to adapt. Um, in, like, in order to, to cement these guys that they were the one who were supposed to take on the big bad, each of the four main characters had to accomplish some challenge or goal by themselves in order to prove that they were worthy to be one of the chosen champions to take on the big evil. Right, I think I remember this. And basically, when they do that, like their character, like if they die before doing that, they can make a new character, no problem. But if they do this feat, they are locked in, that and they have has to, to be brought back. And they got, which means the party's got dish out for a res or a reincarnation. Or Lots whatever. of reincarnation world in that campaign. <laughs> yeah, that I, I definitely Jeff, remember. Jeff, Jeff, uh, but they got to be around. Yes, no matter, no matter if they end up with flippers one day and. Jeff Wings the played next. eight different versions of the same character because <laughs> of all the reincarnates. Um, but with with your dad, he was the last one to, to complete his chosen one thing. Right. And ultimately, what, what I had done is I had taken a challenge from second edition, from the, the Greenback, um, which were the historical-based uh, books uh, about Greek gods and pantheons and something from there because your dad was all in as an archer guy. And this... In the whole, I do one thing really well. If I can throw a monkey wrench into that one thing, he just starts pouting and doesn't do anything, right? And in this—that's—I that, mean—that's the downside of making those characters who are so solid at doing one thing. You kind of lose any kind of flexibility. You, you can be—you could be the master at one thing, but you better be good at something else. Otherwise, you're—you know—all it takes is one little—you know—one little marble in the engine, and you're screwed. Oh yeah, like it's been a long time since I made a melee fighter who didn't also have a bow in his inventory, just in case. Like with with the case of this, his challenge was to go into cave and kill a lion, mm-hmm. and and per an idea that was spawned from the second edition Greek gods and world book, the it was a Nemean lion where you can't hit it with weaponry. You can hit it with you can hit it with anything, and it'll do one damage. Like you ah, need it's it's basically dr bludgeoning <laughs> all of the damage is simply reduced to one so he unloads with his four hours i i do a hundred and whatever damage it's like it takes four <laughs> and immediately we spent half an hour what book is show me i don't i've never seen that there's nothing in the books about that and it's like no there's not as a dm i'm allowed to create a challenge that's relevant and the goal of this and the goal of each of these was to point out to the characters you have weaknesses, and you need to learn to deal with those weaknesses. And he thought it was funny as hell as the other three characters dealt with it. And the, then it happened to him. And that's, it happened to him. And yeah, he that sounds in line with Dad. Blew his gasket. <laughs> and, and so ultimately, like this was an example. He eventually, what he ended up having to do was deal all 150 damage, one damage at a time, burning through <laughs> arrows, then having to go reclaim arrows. <laughs> And nearly ran out of arrows trying to kill uh, these things because they only you can only get them back fifty percent of the time. So he's he's breaking magic arrows to deal one damage. You know, a guy like if he would have just started beating the thing with his bow, he would have amped up his damage and dealt with it much faster. Because uh, he had a bow that was designed to be it's one of those elven bows you could use as a club. So he could have just stood there and beat the thing with this. And instead, he he put in a potion of flies so this thing could only jump and try to claw at him once a turn. 
which is smart defensively, but then you go scoop as many arrows as you can and, and rinse repeat. And what should have been a quick fight took like an hour and a half. <laughs> but he's going to do it his way and then whine about this lion the whole time. Well, I'm going to skid it. How? Why would I? <laughs> it's like, why would I use the sledgehammer to break down the wall? I am the master of spoonery. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then the... You know, with this opportunity, it's like, all right, the, the whole point is learn from this. Like, even if you have a club, things go faster. The idea is you need to be able to diversify because God knows when the party is going to be relying on you. And you, you can you don't need to be the, the, the $100 Swiss Army knife with 500 things in it. You can be the $10 one that's got four things that fold out. But you better have more than just a blade folding out of that thing. <laughs> So then we get to the final boss fight, which, which was something. It was a 12-hour battle against the final boss, noon to just after midnight. And in the middle of the fight, one of the wizards who was, who was there supporting the big bad realizes that the relative threat your dad is from firing a gajillion arrows at a time. And so he looks at him, and he dominates him. Oh. And he rolls a one on the saving throw. Oh. And so it's like, what are you going to do? Is you going to make me start shooting other characters? He says, no. He looks at him and he says, because they're fighting on the top of a mountain, throw your bow off the mountain. Uh. <laughs> and and the, the Yosemite Sam fumes come out. Oh, I get another saving throw. It's like, yes, you do. Two. <laughs> Yahtzee. And that bow goes flying off the mountain. And once again, he goes into, like, he's lost his bow before. Uh, the other time was was by accident. He, he forced a guy to use an ability on him. Instead of the, the cleric had, had found this magical armor that, that gave him at that point in the campaign, like level 16, like a total armor class of 40, mostly from the armor. Did he not think to have, to have his character, who's all about the bow, have a backup bow? No, and, and this, this extends from a... Like, he eventually, after whining, somebody pointed out to him, after like two rounds of doing nothing, you got you got climb skills. Don't get your damn bow. And, and he would do that. And he came back to the fight like 10 rounds later. But this this had happened to him before to a point where they were ambushed by a bunch of guys with short bows. Uh, a, a blade singer who was hunting the party at the behest of this, this evil deity. And then her cohort had one of those shields that when it hits something has a chance to disintegrate something once a day. Uh-huh. The goal was to hit the cleric's armor because it would become, you know, uh, unhittable otherwise because his armor class was so high. But your dad had caused so much carnage that he hit the bow with the disintegration shield. Ah. And he blew the saving throw and the bow disintegrated. So now he's complaining that he can't do anything. There's a bunch of dead archers are all over the place and the floor is littered with bows. Yeah. And, and somebody has to explicitly tell him there are bows on the ground. Pick up one of those. Right? There, there was that, that steadfast one adherence to the ultimate doctrine of Drew. Right with the with the raw the rules as written. If it's not in the book, I'm going to fight about it until the end of time. And then two, that you know, if you break pattern, right, the the, the train comes off the tracks and then it's just sitting there in the dirt. And the idea of putting the the train back on the tracks just never enters anybody's mind. It's like, no, we're just done. Like I don't. I I'm a fan of rules as written. Like, but at the same time, as long as if the DM wants to add some inside homebrew thing, as long as they have gone through the trouble of setting down the rules for how this homebrew homebrew thing works and how they interact with this, that, or the other thing, and they stick to that, I don't care if you add in some homebrew thing. 
Because, I mean, they might not be in the book, but they're still, they'll still be rules as written just by the DM. So, hey, it just means uh, there's nothing wrong with surprising the players, even those who uh, those who have been playing for decades. I When I look at how he dealt with the table, whether as a player or as a DM... Impatiently. Well, <laughs> the impatiently would lead into this because he, he prided himself on having the encyclopedic knowledge and being able to use that over everybody else. But then would get upset when people had to think because they didn't have that encyclopedic knowledge of the same thing and they had to figure out what they were doing. And, and so there's, you know, he would take joy and frustration out of the same things. Uh, but I think more so when I look at him as the DM versus the player, like there's two views at the table. Either, and I think it's a sign of a good DM who views this as a collaborative experience. I'm not out to get the players. I'm to tell a story and allow the players to operate within the story. Mm-hmm. And for the players, it's, it's to in, you know, uh, embed themselves into the story and become a part of whatever's going on and, and dealing with things appropriately. Whereas there's a lot of people, and after nearly 40 years of D&D, your dad definitely was one of these, who viewed it as a contest. It wasn't collaborative. You know, it was... Uh, confrontational. It was a challenge. It was the players versus the DM and the DM versus the players. And I think that came out in how he played versus how he DM'd in that it was a challenge to outsmart the other party. Now, there's sometimes I can, I can understand that when it's being done as a teaching tool, but teaching in not a malicious way. Like one of, one of the stories I remember you told was the story about the party who was camping and the lady who came up to the alarm circle where she she turned out she was a vampire who had been invited into like who, who enthralled somebody to then invite her in uh, so welcome to the vampire into the camp mm-hmm. inside the alarm circle and then the, the vampire just just dominated 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 until she had control of the party and like that was the end of it right just a a learning experience that if you're going to bring somebody new in, it's like you you need to be aware of like the situation, right? There's just some random lady out here in the middle of the woods. Oh, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. It's like, how did you get out here? What's going on? I should wake the party so they're aware of what's going on instead of just straight inter- interacting with her. Yeah. Versus the, I'm going to amp the challenges in such a way as to show you who is the smartest person at the table. And then... You know, Hassan shot my way through the party, where even if the party somehow rolls in such a way to overcome this challenge, I'm going to deus ex machina a failure so they understand their place in the world. Yeah, even though even though I'm sure he would totally disagree. Oh, of course. Uh, he was uh, he did not he was not he didn't care if he killed off the party. It'd be like. Like he would say that he's not doing it on purpose, and that and that he does want to tell the story, and he probably does want to tell the story, but at the same time, he's not gonna pull. He wouldn't pull punches with the party, and if you die, make a new character. Try to do it. Try to do it quick so we can keep playing. Which is which is probably what led to my mindset of like thinking of backup characters, and maybe even just flat out making backup characters that. So that dad wouldn't get mad at me for holding things up, making a character to replace the one that just got killed horribly. I've never, I've never liked the idea of the turnstile character like that because that also for me kills the immersion. Oh, yeah, 
but his there there were times and I I bag on him a lot and everybody who played with him bags on him a lot and this is after all these years it's definitely justified uh, but there were golden moments where what he did also especially as a player what he did could end up teaching uh, other DMs I mean, if he had more patience, he'd be a great teacher. He would have been a great teacher for D&D and whatnot. But he, if he had more patience, he wouldn't have been Drew. True. The, like, when I think of the patience story, uh, for anybody who played 3-5, it was noted that as you advanced in level, the, the challenge ratings of the monsters you know, might have been appropriate, but for a well-balanced party, you could knock out things that were CR 3 or 4 or higher than you with relative ease. And you know, a good party could do it with very little risk. Uh, and as the as the books went on, because the Monster Manual 2 was really built for 3rd edition, but wasn't redone. But it was still solid, and you had the same scaling. And then Monster Manual 3 came out. So as we as we called, uh, we called it Monster Manual Means It. Hmm. Like a CR 10 is for, a, or for a, level to, a party of four level 10 characters, and odds are one of them will die. We had ended up in a situation where on our way in a, a campaign that amazingly went really badly and not at all because of your dad because of the dm uh, your your dad was playing a warforged guy warrior dr2 and we're fighting we're level six or seven and we went up against a, a level to see our 10 thing out of the monster manual three which was like a corpse crawler or something like that basically a metal guy who would impale you to his back you take two damage around being on his back, and then if you try to extricate yourself, you make a strength check, and if you fail, you take a bunch of damage. Well, yep. your dad's Warforce gets pinned on the thing's back. So now we're stuck in the, he can't make the strength check to get off, but he doesn't need to eat, and as long as he doesn't try to get off, he doesn't take the damage, because it was DR. And, and it was in a moment like this where the DM, understanding your dad's encyclopedic knowledge of the game knew that if Drew wasn't trying to deal with this problem, the party probably couldn't deal with it. And my character moved faster that thing and knew, knew more than enough not to get close. And the, the wizard couldn't send spells at that thing without risk killing your dad. And that's how he had to make a new character with his Warforge spending the rest of eternity, seemingly, on the back of the corpse taker. Or whatever yeah, the, the, corpse, the corpse crawler. And it's... Somewhere out there, as we like to say, somewhere in D&D, in this world where all the dragons ended up getting killed, um, there's a warforce pinned to the back of this thing, still walking around, eating other people. Just fuming, swearing, just yeah. like, can't believe they left me. Well, no, he knew. He didn't blame us. He understood what the score was, and I will give him credit. He, when, when the, If the party didn't act stupid, he never blamed the party for what happened. Like, that was the other advantage of having the encyclopedic knowledge was he knew... Like, he'd, he'd never punish the party for not being stupid. Right? And that was... Uh, unless he was in a bad mood and he wanted to delete, then he'd, he wouldn't... He'd just get angry about that and say, well, I would have done whatever. It's like, yeah, you would have. We didn't. But I remember that because that, that goes off and there was a lesson that that DM had ultimately learned. Uh, was it his first time DMing? Oh, no. No, 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 no. The issue here was... The DM, this is the first time probably doing a real homebrew campaign where he's, he'd come up with a campaign world and an idea himself he wanted to try and we're willing to play in it. Uh, but he had brought in, this is this is the story of Tony and 
the girl that he brought that we talked about in an earlier episode, where he was playing to uh, running a game and letting her play to to impress her, even though it wasn't really happening, uh, where he was being uh, punitive to the rest of us. And then the, the, all the bad guys ignored the girl who he was trying to be with. Ah. And and ultimately, this, this ended in tears for him, almost literally, when she had utterly betrayed the party in, in such a ridiculous fashion. Uh, we talked about this with Dale in the previous uh, two sessions ago. And ultimately, I had to kill the character his, uh, his, his not-quite-girlfriend was playing because we were an evil party. Slaughtered her, if I remember the story correctly. Uh, the, the triple saving throw. The massive damage, the poison, and the death attack from my assassin. Right. Uh, and, and she failed the very first saving throw, <laughs> and, and that was that was the end of that. Overkill. And, and it, yeah. <laughs> well, this was, this was necessary overkill. <laughs> and, you know, going from that, it, it would be interesting to see in the different campaigns and with the different people who would play in them as I was traditionally the DM because no one else would do so for any amount of time. Well, yeah, I know. To see how your dad would, would come in and you'd, you'd see that no matter if he was playing a rogue or was playing some massive damage archetype or even when he was playing OMC, how the, the patterns kind of came together consistently. You know, with that, uh, you know, the, the split personality that was hardcore rules lawyer that would come in and jump on things. And also an agent of chaos. And and would it would spark chaos if it entertained him. We talked, uh, session three, Jeff and I discussed the party. <laughs> because it, it is, uh, it, it has transcended uh, gaming groups in which I've played. Uh, was the, the story. And arguably, is your, you're ultimately going to be your dad's D&D legacy. Uh, legacy was... Doing something so outrageous in a throwaway session that uh, would, you know, live on beyond gaming groups in which I'd played. And it, I will give him credit when I think of the party, uh, that it was such a, a out of left field way to do things that was, was brilliant. That he was going to finance this party to make it look like this other guy caused the riot. Uh, yeah, to make the crazy. Religious nuts seemed like they were throwing Woodstock. Yes. And then ultimately, as he's doing this, whenever his plans would break down, it's not my fault. <laughs> like Han Solo in, in, in Lando and Empire Strikes, yeah, it's like, not my fault. right? I, I told him to fix it. I told him to fix it. It's like the hyperdrive's not working. It's not my fault. right? And, and you'd see that. And ultimately, whenever something like this would go wrong, the complete... I don't see how they can blame me for this or take responsibility for this. He never got mad about that, though. At least whenever I was around. He, no. he was clearly never mad. Even when you were saying you knew what you were doing, he would just bust out the big old grin and go, I had no idea what you're talking this about. When, when he got to be clever, there was an effect. He, he enjoyed it, and he, he took ownership of it. Uh, and, and I will say this. When, when he got beat... By something that was very clearly defined in the books that he couldn't argue, he took his lumps like a man. The the example of that, and I think it was discussed earlier uh, in a different different episode, was the Battle of the Silver City, where in the campaign that went from one to twenty, they had this they had been complaining that they hadn't had a big battle in a while. So I gave him and said, like the word is, a million kobolds are coming to wipe you guys out. 
So like a warscape big battle. Kind of, yeah, like this is this is huge and and immediately they didn't question that a million of these things were coming. And immediately, well, screw, it, we got to get out of here. <laughs> and and the NP, the prized NPC, the the bard who was in a relationship with Tom the cleric, wasn't going to leave, and her retinue was going to protect her from the party because she wasn't going to abandon all the people left behind by the rich jackasses on on the in the Silver City who wanted to leave for their own sake. So eventually the big battle happens, and then you get the big celebration after. And Tom the Cleric and the Bard get to go off and have their moment in the bathtub in one of the in the biggest, most ritzy house that's been abandoned by the person who was fleeing the kobold. So they're up there. And your dad's assumption was, all right, there's something else going on. And instead of taking care of this myself, which I could clearly could, or with the other two members of the party, I'm going to go ruin the cleric's moment because I can. And he goes into the house, gets up there. They're in the bathroom behind the locked door, but he can see through the keyhole and use his his like dimension door, whatever it was, kind of blip power to get in there. Nightcrawler so bamfing. Right. So he blips in there. And he's like, hey, we, we got this thing. We got to go. And the cleric's <laughs> like, I'm in the middle of something. Yeah, yeah. No, come on. We need the cleric. Come on. Chop, chop. It can wait. No, it's happening right now. You have this back and forth where he's he's relishing in the fact that he gets to be a dick. <laughs> and then in what is probably the greatest blowout of his D&D career, because I, having played with him long enough, I, I learned a little bit how to deal with him and his ego. The bard looks over at him and just starts talking to him. And it's one of those where I'd set my phone down on purpose just to keep a track on the time on the phone. <laughs> So I start talking. I go into this speech as the bard about like the various things she's seen him do and his skill set, why this makes him great, and how a rogue of legend can do this. And he's just sitting here transfixed with me, the DM, the whole time. Jeff is fighting the giggle because he knows what's coming, having played a bard before. So I'm going over to Spiel and like I start talking. The number, like the, the minute flips. And I keep going, and then the second time the minute flips, it's like, and with everything great you do, you need to make a will save. And he's like, what? Well, she's been talking to you for a minute in real time. She's fascinating you. And he's like, ah, look, I got a 32 on my will save. I had a good roll. He's like, I'm, aha, do that. Fine, it's a perform check. You got a 54. Get going. And it just sends him out to go deal with this by himself. It was one of those that he was clever. And then he just took, you know, a Mike Tyson uppercut right into the, you know, the eggs underneath the sausage. And he just, the look on his face was he got, he got beaten fair and square by something so utterly simple just fanning his ego. Just fanning his ego. That he, he just took it like a man from there. But it led to, ultimately, he, he was able to learn from that mistake because that led to what we call the cue the music phenomenon. Is that the... As soon as the bad guy starts talking, he's like, roll for initiative. <laughs> to a point where I cue up Motorhead's Ace of Spades, which became the anthem, so that later when Tom was running a campaign, when the bad guy starts monologuing, there's an automatic pause moment because Tom put in all this work that he's going to let the bad guy monologue and give the inf- give us the information we need before we cue the music and go deal with the bad guy. Because ultimately it would be, I have this great, I'm bored, let's fight, cue the music. Right. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, Hassan chop. So in the right situation, if the learning was presented in a specific way, specific to the, the troublesome player, we'll call him, <laughs> he could learn. 
and and seeing how that would affect his behavior. Sometimes that learning doesn't go in the right way. Uh, so finding a balance to keep the party engaged uh, with the different reasons they all came to the table. And his reason was partly social, partly to show that when it comes to D&D, he is the man. He is Encyclopedia Brown for all my older listeners. But if you get in the way of that, you you get the Drew response, which can be halfway between childish and epic, depending on how that coin is balancing. He did. He did very much enjoy the social of it, though. Like, like he basically jumped at the chance to be able to start playing Fifth Edition or Pathfinder with us when you know I started inviting him. Which, I mean, that that kind of led to issues, you know, because like the the shop or, or the place where we were gaming, like there'd be people at other play other tables going, you know, playing Pokemon, and he'd make some commentary about that, and it'd be like, come on, just them do their thing yeah and you know it wasn't he didn't keep his voice low while saying such things no he he wanted to his view of the world was what are you going to do about it yeah i think as we see throughout life he found out in many cases when things mattered in life what people would do about it and it didn't didn't always work out and some of that frustration was brought into his social arena yeah he like i could tell that he he missed gaming and uh, and whatnot when we were inviting good because i'm pretty sure that he had stopped gaming with you guys that much uh for a while well he there were i'm gonna be polite there were issues outside of gaming that off put him with a lot of people because a lot of the people we were gaming with with dale with Tom, with Caleb, uh, these were people who were my age, roughly, but they they were all married. Some of them had kids, hmm. and his behavior was not something the wives wanted around, especially if there were kids there. It um, would make hosting a pickle for any of those people. Correct, and and there ultimately there was the. The death knell of him being involved in those games was the, the legendary. I wanted it was Halloween two thousand and seven, right? Where we're going to speed through the parts of the story that are really unpleasant. Ended with him destroying my car, and I don't mean at a role playing table. I had a nineteen seventy nine Ford Fairmont that, if it hadn't hit the grove of trees and crumpled around it, and a seventy nine Fairmont has nearly as much steel in it as a Sherman tank. Those <laughs> things are indestructible at their mighty nine miles a gallon. Uh, he would have driven it into a doctor-slash-chiropractor's home office. I'm pretty sure he uh, disproved the end part of indestructible. This Well, <laughs> with the exception of, of part of the front, it, any other car would have been confetti with what he hit. He uh, Had anybody been in the passenger seat, they would have been killed. Right. Um, we were fortunate nobody else was in the car, but he gashed his head open enough that uh, when the police found the car, they thought he had gotten rid of a body because of the amount of blood in the back seat. That was from a scalp wound, which is why it was there. And he walked it off. And, uh, to, a, to a point. I, I, there's, a, there's a whole other story about everything else that went in, in, into the car, but ultimately everybody who was a game, for the most part, everybody who gamed in that circle was at the holiday party. Everybody knew he left. Everybody knew he destroyed the car. And 
And everybody saw us telling him, do not take the car, get out of the car, we have a ride home. And he just, he did it. Part of that was was in, uh, built on his, his health issues, right? And, and the things that he didn't check or take care of that, that ultimately led to this. But there, his health situations repeatedly put him in the hospital and it... It affected the, the meta around D&D because people saw that and they just didn't want the risk of that being near their families or their, their houses that led to, you know, an uncomfortable place where it's like, I could game with Drew or I could game with everybody else. And Yeah, my dad, uh, he had diabetes and he didn't take care of it as well as he should have. Apparently he had never checked his blood sugar ever, right, which, which ultimately led to... Uh, the big goodbye and his once again that that same attitude about what are you going to do affected his work life right i had seen i had seen what happened in, in different places and how that affected it which really made it harder because in D D it was the one place he could somewhat consequence free just let it all out uh, but ultimately it was the rest of his life that caused problems that kept him from being at the D D table Right, whether it was his extended stays in the hospital, like that big one on the day of my last ever final for my bachelor's degree. I'm not going to get into my, my rant over that and how I had to quarterback everything when they took him to the wrong hospital. Um, and dealing with the ex-girlfriend at the time, with your mom at the time, and, and every time he'd go in and trying to make sure pieces were there, trying to deal with the aftermath of him destroying city property when he went through a streetlight when he crashed the car and how they wanted to saddle me with $8,000 worth of damages and then having to go through uh, a hearing with the state over that. Um, you know, constant issues with, with the employers where, you know, if, you, if they don't hire you to tell people what to do, then they don't want you to tell people what to do, right? It's not, it's not your job. You have a job to do. And every time you would come home, it, it would be a discussion around, well, they're letting all these people get away with all this other stuff. It's like, not your problem, right? You're, you're focusing on to go get your, your journeyman certification as an electrician, which opens up a world of possibilities you've never had before. Go do that. And this, he was very similar to Frank in that, in that lesson, where this was, I would say, the classic high intelligence, low wisdom player. You have the intelligence to know how all these things should be done better. Well, I'd argue Frank's more low intelligence, mediocre wisdom, but no, Frank is a Frank hell is, of a bluff check. Frank is a, he's Frank has got a hell of a bluff check, but and and he can be very very smart. But once again, it's a lack of wisdom, right? Their like their their skill sets took him in different directions, but ultimately it was it was the same wisdom failure, which was no one to shut up. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, you know my dad. God forbid he let anybody get in the last word. Oh yes, I've I I have the things I've seen. I'm just gonna we're gonna skip over. Let's just say we've. It's always a, an interesting relationship when you have that friend. You, you always know who that friend is, and when when you ultimately have to say when when the when it's just I I cannot deal with the collateral damage anymore, and it's it's one of those difficult times because I was. You know, there's a point where God, him, Frank, and I were all living in poverty, and I was, I was the one who's, your dad going for his journey was also trying to work his way out. I was trying to work my way out through my IT degree. And the difference is, I like I'm the one who succeeded, and you could see 
ultimately the difference between my success and the success of those two guys was I learned when to shut up. And then things got better. And really, that was the big key. It was also understanding that life may be a competition, but at work, it's a collaboration. Whether or not you like things that are going on, your job is not to demean your commanding officer, but do what you can to make them look better. And Frank, especially being a Navy guy, should have understood that, but I think that explains his short stint in the Navy, hmm. where you, you just need to understand it doesn't matter if everybody else under the command is doing it wrong. Your job is to make him look good to his boss, because ultimately, then he gets promoted, and as you as his primary evangelist, move up into his spot. And this is how these things usually work. Or you, you leave them with the inability to say anything bad about you when you switch jobs. Because you have been supportive and a team player, which is what everybody wants to know. Um, which is why I think back to a lot of people in that part of the life, all of whom were gamers, all of whom brought similar issues of a sort to the gaming table. I think of Frank, I think of Lyle, I think of, of Drew. And how there's a parallel to that mindset and then how they end up doing in life. Because um, I, I know with where you are in life, if you look back, like you could make a very clear statement, you're doing better in life now than your dad has ever done. I mean, if he had stuck with the whole electrician thing, he probably would have been great, but he didn't. Um, yeah, I mean, like I like my job well enough. It pays well enough, and... I mean, lucky for me, I get to sit in a box, watch a road all day, and have YouTube in the background while I'm doing it. So, there's definitely worse jobs. It's, I mean, I worked at a worse job. I was third shift at McDonald's in the drive-thru. That's a worse job. But still did the job. Didn't cause issues. Right? Nope. And, and I think when you look at... I did it and I suffered, but I did it. <laughs> You look at players who are willing to, to do things like that in real life to just improve their lives, and I think there's an effect it has on the characters because that understanding of, of hard work, team play, and working to to do something better uh, leads into the idea that I don't need to be the center of the spotlight in the campaign. right? I, I, have a, I, I am a puzzle piece in the whole puzzle. Right. And without the whole puzzle, it just doesn't look right when it's done. And this was a chance for everybody else to demonstrate their role as a piece. So you could see that connection between real life and what they brought to the table. Absolutely. I mean, you need party cohesion for it to work, for everybody to have a good time. And sometimes, and like for a while, I like the types of character my dad would make were the types of characters that I would try to make. Because, you know, I never, because. I mean, I always saw it. I never experienced it, especially as a DM. So, like, in my mind, it was all about, like, the legendary party. And, you know, when he did all the, all the other crazy stuff that he would miraculously manage to work out. You know, like... But late, uh, lately, to me, the type of characters that I really enjoy more are probably the types of characters he would not be able to stand. And that's just characters who are good, like, heroic, like... Not just paladins, though I love playing paladins, and hell, I'd love to talk about that sometime, but yep. uh, just heroes. Like, I've, I've come to really enjoy just playing characters who are heroes. And coincidentally, I've also come to appreciate the character of Superman more when I used to be all about Batman rocks, Superman sucks, me. And I still like Batman, because he's Batman, <laughs> but I've come to appreciate Superman more. 
And it's I think that it all, that always goes back to a reflection of what people bring to the table. Yeah. And, and ultimately, meanwhile, Dad was in his forties going, "Batman rocks, Superman sucks." Yeah, which just came <laughs> through in his characters. And it, I, I think there's a the lesson that I've gleaned from that is you look at the competitive versus collaborative players, especially as you get older, especially as you. I've been privileged to a degree that I, I have a large amount of control over who plays at my table. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that, with very rare exception, it's people who understand that collaborative nature, want to be part of the team and part of the story. And I I spoke to Jeff was here when we talked about the party. And God help me, like if I had to D&D in the afterlife, Jeff gets a chair. I would game with that guy for eternity. He is he is definitely the best person to ever play at the table. With. As I remember, he was all aboard the party plants too. Well, he was along for the ride. He was support he didn't he didn't bring up the idea. He supported the idea because he appreciated the idea of a throwaway session. And once again, he was being a team player to support the other player at the table. I'm guessing he also had the mindset of this is going to happen whether I'm involved or not, so I might as well be along. Yeah, I might as well enjoy it, be a part of it, and invest in the idea. Uh, so it was a really, really good session. Uh, well, so thank you for joining me for Episode 6, Drew, uh, where we took a look at uh, the nature of what people bring to the table, how that affects their characters, and how your dad was, I would say, case study number one in the annals of D&D <laughs> uh, when it came to this this type of behavior. Uh, perhaps at some point we will talk about the nature of what your dad referred to as lawful stupid. Some people refer to yeah. as lawful good. What it means to play those characters uh, and a lot of the misunderstanding that comes around. Uh, we'll just say the lawful characters in general with a focus on, on lawful good. Because I, as someone who's played lawful evil before, I also see how people misunderstand that category right. as well. And I, And I mean... Again, one of my first characters is a paladin, so I used to be lawful stupid. And I feel, I, I like to believe anyway that I've moved past that and into the type of character that works well, that, as lawful that, so, But I, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Once again, this was episode six of the Exodus of Magic podcast. Drew, <laughs> this has been Dungeon Master Eddie, uh, and we'll see you for episode seven.